Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, November 23rd. Attention anyone with student loan debt or anyone who knows and cares about anyone with student loan debt. Okay, now we have everybody's attention. You could be forgiven for being very confused right now about your status under President Biden's loan forgiveness program, $10,000 for most people making under $125,000 a year, $20,000 of debt forgiveness if you got Pell Grants, which are for undergrad students with serious financial needs. The forgiveness program is tied up in court and heading to the Supreme Court, uh uh-oh, if you're on Biden's side, and yesterday in the latest development, the president announced a six-month extension of the student loan repayment pause, the temporary program. Here's the president yesterday. But I'm completely confident my plan is legal. But right now, it's on hold because of these lawsuits. We're not going to back down, though, in our fight to give families breathing room. That's why the Department of Justice is asking the Supreme Court of the United States to rule on the case. But it isn't fair to ask tens of millions of borrowers eligible for relief to resume their student debt payments while the courts consider the lawsuit. And therefore, this latest pause is through next June. Now, it's the eighth time the restart date for loan repayments has been moved back since the start of the pandemic. And how does this all affect you and affect the country as a whole? With me now is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, who covers the economics of higher education for The Washington Post. Danielle, happy Thanksgiving in advance, and thanks for coming on WNYC today. Same to you, and thanks for having me. Let's start with the new news. Anything to add to what President Biden announced yesterday and what people with debt should do as a result? So it's it's kind of interesting. While the, the top headline has been that it, it, that the payments start won't happen until the end of June, actually it's a, it might be a little longer than that. So what the administration is saying is payments will resume 60 days after the department is allowed to implement the program or litigation is resolved. So if it's done sooner than June, then your payments can start in May potentially. But if that doesn't happen by June 30th, payments will resume 60 days later or on September 1st. So I think that's a kind of a clarion call to all borrowers to pay close attention to what's happening in the courts right now. I mean, certainly a lot of borrowers I've spoken to kind of fall into three camps. There are those who have been saving up the money that would have otherwise gone to their payments to purchase homes for, for saving up for down payment or to actually start padding their retirement funds because their student loan payments kind of precluded them from being able to really save. Then there are others who had set aside the money in hopes of starting to really attack that debt um, before payments restarted and take advantage of not having to pay interest. And then there are just people who are just happy that they don't have to be stressed over these payments and just living life right now. I I think all of those folks are very curious to see what's going to happen And I think yesterday's announcement is a way for the administration to kind of hedge their bets on what the courts might do. While certainly this Supreme Court is quite conservative, there are a lot of legal scholars who are watching the moves of the court and wondering whether they might reinstate this program. It's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to strike down this plan. So I think it's really important for everyone to pay attention to to what's happening in this space. If they have debt or if they care about people who do have debt. Mm -hmm. Does the pause 
mean all student debt repayment for every borrower is paused now through the end of June? Well, no. So it's interesting. While the vast majority, like 95% of people with federal student loans, that's loans that were made originated by the federal government, um, have benefited from this pause, there are still roughly about 4 million people who have a type of federal loan that's owned by private entities, and they never got to take advantage of this pause. They had to continue to make payments on their loans. Plus, there is millions of other borrowers who also have private student loans that were originated by banks and other types of lenders, uh, and they are also not uh, eligible for this particular pause. Danielle, can you remind us um, in a little more detail of the legal status of the main debt forgiveness program that Biden originally announced as it heads to the Supreme Court. I know you're a, you're an economics of higher education reporter. You're not a legal analyst. But can you summarize the legal argument by the Republican-led states who are taking this sure. to court and how Biden is trying to fend that off? Sure. So there are six Republican-led states that sued kind of as a coalition trying to block this plan. And their arguments are twofold. One is that the president lacks the authority to unilaterally uh, effectively create policy without congressional involvement. And then the other is that many of these states like Missouri, Nebraska, either have quasi-state entities that own federal student loans or invest in that same kind of federal student loans I'd mentioned previously that are owned by private entities. And their fear was that if you enact this program, people are going to consolidate those loans in order to be eligible for this program. They're going to lose a lot of money. Also, uh, for some of those states with that same quasi-state uh, entity that services federal student loans, meaning they make money by collecting and applying the payments on behalf of the federal government, um, they will also lose money because if 20 million people have their loans completely wiped away, well, that's 20 million less accounts that those servicers will have as a part of their business portfolio. Uh, and Initially, that particular case was dismissed by a lower court because the judge in that case said, these people don't have standing. They can't really prove harm here, that they're going to be harmed by this policy. And so he dismissed the case. And the, naturally, they appealed to the Eighth Circuit. And the Eighth Circuit initially imposed a stay, kind of putting uh, that lower court ruling on pause. And then most recently, last week, they imposed a preliminary injunction, which effectively bars the Department of Education from accepting more applications under this program and discharging any debt. At the same time, in a totally separate case, with the same kind of objective of upending this debt relief plan, uh, a federal judge in Texas actually said, yes, I agree. The president does not have the authority to unilaterally uh, create this program without congressional support. And I'm going to strike down this program and call it unlawful. In that Texas case, it involved two borrowers, one of whom was ineligible because she had uh, the type of federal loan that's held by private entities. And the other was a borrower who did not have a Pell Grant and couldn't qualify for the full 20000 Their argument in part was that not only what the president did was illegal because he doesn't have the authority, but also the program is especially arbitrary. How did you come up with these particular uh, parameters? How is this fair to the borrowers who have debt? And the judge sided with them. Naturally, the Department of Justice is appealed that case as well, that ruling, and that case landed in the Fifth Circuit, 
where the department is now asking uh, the the appeals court to stay that order, essentially put it on hold mm. and allow them to to move forward with the program. Those are the two most important cases that are unfolding right now. There were seven lawsuits seeking to to abolish this program. Those two cases are the ones that have gotten the furthest. And in the Eighth Circuit one, that's where the uh, Justice Department has asked the Supreme Court to intervene and, and reinstate the, the debt relief program. Boy, that is a lot of moving parts. No wonder Good people Lord are confused <laughs> about the status of their student loan forgiveness. And I take back what I said before. If you ever get tired of being a higher ed economics reporter, you obviously could be a legal analyst. <laughs> I, oh. I have lots of good sources who are kind to me and let me ask them innate <laughs> questions at odd hours, yes. Olivia in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Olivia. Hi. Um, so I took out um, federal student loans for this academic year, and I did take out a Pell Grant, um, and I took out un- – I was given a Pell Grant, excuse me, and I also took out unsubsidized student loans. And I think I'm just a little confused about whether any of this is going to end up applying to me. (laughs) Can you help Olivia, Danielle? Sure. So, Olivia, if your loans were originated before June of this year, I think actually, no, the end of July 1st, by July 1st of this year, uh, then you would Mm -hmm. qualify for the debt relief program. Right. So it's it, it not only applies to people who have left school, it also applies to a lot of people like yourself who are still in school and took out loans for this academic year. So in that instance, if you are within those parameters, then you should be eligible. That unsubsidized loan, it's it's all still federal loan, still a direct loan. All it means is that the, the Department of Education or, edu- or federal government is not paying the interest on your loans while you're in school for some people yeah they will pay your interest while you're in school depending on what your financial need is but that's a direct Mm -hmm. loan if it was originated before july 1st then you're good olivia i hope i hope that helps thank you thank you very much kevin on staten island you're on wnyc hi kevin hi good morning um i i have a question about something in this legislation or this this deal that a lot of people don't talk about, and that's the uh, bringing people who are in default on their student loans current. And if that is still part of the policy, and if you know of any mechanics of exactly how that's going to work. Sure. So actually, that's a separate policy. There was a lot of policies coming out of this administration uh, that kept us all very busy who write about it. This is a program called Fresh Start, right? And the idea here was to bring people who are default on their federal loans back into good standing, remove that uh, negative mark off their credit report. The department is still working on that plan, and their aim is to have that completely done before the resumption of payments. So that is still in the works. Um, I think they had said maybe about seven or eight million people would benefit from this if their loans were in default before the pandemic pause was imposed in March of 2020. So if you are in that camp, then you will still benefit from that program. It hasn't been completed yet, but it is in the works. Hope that's helpful, Kevin. Here's a a tweet from a listener with an interesting question. Tell me if you've heard this one before. Listener writes, the pause is negatively impacting my credit score, but if my loan will potentially be forgiven, 
I don't want to make those payments if I don't have to. But the more forgiveness is delayed, the more impact on my credit score. Is that a common problem? Not one that I've heard necessarily, because the credit bureaus are supposed to be uh, not, you know, the department is supposed to be informing the credit bureaus that this is not a, a delinquency, right? It's not supposed to appear like you're not making those payments. If you're in this what's called administrative forbearance, which is what this period is for people who are eligible, then it shouldn't show up negatively on the credit report. I would encourage um, the listener to call the ombudsman's office. This is a branch of the Department of Education where they can kind of walk you through these uh, problems and also potentially file a complaint if needed. So the ombudsman from the Federal Department of Education will actually yes. answer an individual's call and yes, they do. give them I a mean, substantive response? It is a surprisingly <laughs> effective part of the federal government. Yes, I've I've directed many people there and they have reported back to me that that was the best help that they've received was through the ombudsman's office, yeah. And Jag in Queens, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jag. Hey, how's it going? Um, no, I really uh, enjoyed the, the hold on uh, paying loans. Uh, you know, I was able to do other things and save up uh, some money. And I'm also trying to do the PSLF program, which is the loan forgiveness program, because I'm really in debt. But I, w I, I wonder, um, what is the opposition to loan forgiveness? It's, you know, it's t let's say it's $10,000, like you said, if you make $125,000. Um, why is it that we're, we're struggling to get this passed? What, what is the opposition saying? Is it private ties? Is it deeper than that? So the opposition is 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 kind of fivefold. <laughs> I mean, so the first one, of course, is having the president do this relief program through an executive order and bypass Congress is a point of contention. The other one is the fairness part. For people who have paid their loans off or who never had to borrow, why should they have to foot the bill for those who did borrow? The other aspect is potentially uh, creating a system in which people believe there will be forgiveness again and then continue to borrow too much money. That's that's what the argument constantly is that I hear. And then also that this is a pointless policy in the sense that it does nothing to fix the system as is and is just a government giveaway to the detriment of the majority of Americans. And then I guess the fifth one that we've heard in part is how arbitrary the terms of this program, debt relief program is, uh, in, in that 20,000 for people with Pell, 10,000 for folks who did not have it, while many people see that kind of Pell bonus as a targeted way of getting to folks who come from low-income backgrounds in order to help them uh, kind of ameliorate some of the financial tension created by their student debt. Uh, others just see this as an unfair way of redistributing wealth to, to folks. And I guess a sixth issue I've heard quite a bit is college-educated people do not need help. They are the ones who are able to stay employed through economic crisis. Why do they need this assistance? But the reality is nearly 40% of people with student loans actually never graduated college. For many of those people, the debt that they're paying back never afforded them the benefit of the education that they um, that they were seeking. So those are some of the things that I've heard in terms of people who are against this debt relief and just broadly against any kind of student debt cancellation, whether it's from this program or others. 
That's a pretty serious list of critiques, some of which sound like they're thoughtful and not just, you know, selfishly political. Uh, does the Biden administration have any particularly good or bad responses to, uh, and you don't have to go down the whole list again, but maybe pick <laughs> yes, out one, long, pick out one, pick out one or two and, and say how they would respond? Well, the, the, the aspect of not fixing the system, right? So the Biden administration, when they announced this debt relief program, also uh, announced a repayment program that will be in effect next year that allows uh, borrowers, particularly those with undergraduate loans, to pay back no more than 5% of their discretionary income. And that's a measure that's set to, in this case, I think 250% above the poverty line um, is how they make that calculation. This would allow for um, folks not to have to eat into their full-on income in order to pay off their student loans. It would probably ease a lot of the budgets for a lot of Americans who have student debt. And for those with graduate loans, I think they're doing a uh, kind of a sliding scale of sorts where if you have undergrad and grad, it's somewhere between 5 and 10% of your discretionary income. Either way, this plan is supposed to be far more generous than what exists and allow for people not to have to pay back their loans well into their retirement. It caps it at a certain uh, number of years before the remaining balance is forgiven. So that's one way. I think another thing that the, that the administration would say is, hey, we're trying to find every way that is within the education department's authority without needing Congress to make this program a lot more beneficial to students to students and to borrowers. Another way is capping what's called interest capitalization. This is where if you put your loans in forbearance, say you had to postpone those payments, and it, while you're doing that, interest continues to accrue. Now, when you start repaying those loans, the interest that was accruing to that time is added on to the principal, and then you are paying uh, interest on top of interest, essentially, and that can balloon your balance. This happens to a lot of people as they struggle to pay back their loans, as they move from different repayment plans. So the, the administration is trying to find ways to make the lending system um, more functional for, for borrowers, but a lot of the heavy lifting to really change this program has to be done in Congress. And what's kind of concerning at this stage is that the the way that this debt relief program has become so heavily politicized and so there's just so much vitriol around this program right now in Congress. I feel like there's a good chance that we won't see the kind of bipartisan um, uh, cooperation that's needed to really affect the big changes in the federal student loan program. Is there a political anal analysis to be had that says college-educated people tend to vote more for Democrats, whereas non-college-educated people, which is still the majority of the public that doesn't have four-year degrees, um, non-college-educated non people tend more to vote for Republicans. And so the Republicans um, oppose and the Democrats embrace this program? I mean, that is certainly a, a possible aspect of, of the argument here. I am the education reporter, not the political <laughs> reporter. So I, 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 you know, try not to make to overstep uh, my bounds here. But certainly that is a part of the argument, as, as I've heard. But what's fascinating to me is that a lot of Republicans will still fight for the colleges and universities that are in their districts, right? I think we saw this most interestingly with Mitch McConnell and the way that he treated Berea College in Kentucky, trying to make sure they got a carve out from a tax on their endowment. 
um, in part of, because of the work that they do, but also in part because it's a proud, it's an institution that many people in his district are very proud of. And so while there's all this discussion about uh, higher education, indoctrinating people and making and this being a bastion for liberalism, when you start talking about the schools that are in their communities, it becomes a very different conversation. Yeah. So I think once you start to, to break down some of the politics and the bluster, uh, people feel very protective about the, the community colleges and and regional schools and universities that are in their region, and they will fight for them and their needs. And there we end our conversation on the many moving parts right now on student loan debt relief, forgiveness, call it what you will. Those um, not included in that, like those with private loans, as our guest just said, and we leave it there with Daniel Douglas Gabriel, who covers the economics of higher education for The Washington Post. Thanks for your great reporting and great talking about your reporting. Thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy it. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.